The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. How did agriculture do in Sacramento County last year? Production was up. But can you guess the commodity that led the way? We have the details and the numbers. Organic Farms had a great year in 2016 with California's organic output at the top. Hedgerows provide many benefits to farmers, including reduced pest control costs, as well as better pollination of crops. But what are the drawbacks? We delve into agricultural hedgerows, the pros and the cons, in a special report. We've got a lot more, including the latest news on the California harvest picture for early fall. It's all on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Led by a dramatic increase in the price for wine grapes, Sacramento County farmers and ranchers set a record for overall agricultural output last year. The 2016 Crop and Livestock Report, released by the Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner's Office, revealed that the gross value of all agricultural production in Sacramento County reached a record high more than $507 million. That figure represents a 7.9% increase over last year's numbers, despite a record fifth year of drought that hurt many agricultural operations. Wine grapes continue to rule as king in Sacramento County for the past eight years, and milk continues to hang on as number two. California is the third top producing state of pears behind Washington and Oregon, and Sacramento County is the top pear producing county in California. They remain as our third top crop. Then in fourth place, poultry, primarily turkeys, is our fourth place commodity, and rounding out the top five is nursery stock. It hasn't been in the top five since 2010, due primarily to the slump in building and also new housing. So you would think that the drought would also depress the nursery industry, but the prolonged drought actually encouraged many homeowners to tear out their water-thirsty landscapes and lawns and replace them with xeriscapes, uh, using plants that are much more thrifty with their water requirements. That, together with the slowly recovering uh, home building industry, has helped the nursery industry return to the top five, and we're glad to see them there. That's Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner Julie Jensen. Jensen went on to tell the Board of Supervisors which crop led the way for that big increase. Well, the primary answer is grapes, wine grapes. Our top crops value increased significantly in 2016. We saw increases in acreage, yield, and price, leading to a 44% increase, and this is huge. Because this is our top crop, these increases outweighed the losses that we saw in some of our other commodities. And also in a drought, growers will often either plant less annual crops or leave annual crop fields fallow so that they can maintain their permanent crops such as their vineyards and orchards. Also somewhat surprising after I just said that uh, they protect their their uh, permanent crops and let their annual crops kind of go to hell in a drought, um, we saw an increase of 55% in our veg crops and processing tomatoes climbed into the top 10 pushing out rice. And I can't tell you why. I've looked and looked. I don't know why, but that's what happened this last year. Also addressing the Board of Supervisors was Sacramento County Farm Bureau Executive Director Bill Bird. He told them that while the drought may be to blame for the lower output of some commodities, 
Other factors could also be playing a role. Our farmers are forced to pay the highest labor costs in this country, the high minimum wage coupled with very expensive workers' compensation insurance, liability insurance, health care benefits, costs our growers millions of dollars. And these are things that growers in other states don't have to pay. Still, as far as agricultural production goes compared to the rest of the counties in California, Sacramento is somewhere in the mid-20s, 24th or 25th. Number one this year, and they took the top spot away from Tulare County, is Kern County. Kern County produced $7.1 billion worth of agricultural products, led by a record pistachio crop and an increase in the cherry crop. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue says he has some ideas as to why firefighting costs this year have surpassed $2 billion to be the highest on record. Obviously, there have several large fires. It may have been just a confluence of a lot of complex issues. More specifically, it's been looked like everywhere we've had fire this year, large fires, many over 100,000 acres that uh, create a lot of money. When you have 28,000 people fighting fires for a longer period of time, it started earlier this year. When asked if he expects firefighting costs to rise. Not necessarily. That's why we want to do good forest management. The secretary hosted a bipartisan group of senators to call for Congress to cover major forest fires with emergency funds instead of raiding the Forest Service's fire prevention funds. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. U.S. Forest Service headquarters in Washington, D.C. played host Tuesday to Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue and a congressional delegation working together to address wildfire suppression funding issues. In particular, the end of borrowing from other fire funds designated for maintenance when catastrophic wildfires take place. And one senator involved in this issue for several years, Oregon's Ron Wyden, told reporters, We have never had a better shot at finally getting fire borrowing ended than we do in this upcoming period when we're going to have another disaster package. Due to growing awareness of both the severity and ability to prevent such a disaster. Senator James Risch of Idaho explains, This is at least partially preventable and almost fully manageable. So with the expenditure of funds ahead of time rather than after, you can actually accomplish tamping down the catastrophic effects of the event. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sales of organic agricultural production continued to increase in 2016 when U.S. farms produced and sold $7.6 billion in certified organic commodities. That's up 23% from 2015. That's according to data released by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Agricultural Statistics Service. And who's leading the way? Why, California, of course. With $2.9 billion in certified organic sales, they continued to lead the nation in certified sales, accounting for 38% of the U.S. total. It also had the largest share of certified organic acres and farms. Three states had more than 1,000 certified organic farms. California at over 2,700 farms, Wisconsin at 1,200, and New York at over 1,000. The top organic commodities for 2016 included milk up 18%, eggs up 11%, broiler chickens up 78%, apples, which were up 8%, and organic lettuce, that was up 6%. Other top organic crops were strawberries, grapes, tomatoes, corn, potatoes, hay, spinach, and mushrooms. 
Here's this week's California crop report. Alfalfa continues to be cut and baled. Sorghum for silage is in various stages of development. Corn silage continues to be harvested. Cotton bowls continue to open. Safflower is drying in the fields. Stone fruit harvest is drawing to a close. Wine, table, and raisin grape harvest is ongoing. Raisin grapes continue to be placed on trays for drying. Finished raisin trays were rolled up for pickup. Asian pears, pears, figs, and pomegranates are being harvested. Kiwi fruit in Tulare County is nearing maturity. Cherry orchards were pruned. Persimmons continue to gain size and coloring. The Valencia orange harvest is winding down for the year. Lemons were harvested and packed. Some orange groves were pushed out to make way for new plantings. Early apple varieties are being harvested, and the olive harvest has begun in Tulare County. The almond harvest is ongoing. Walnut orchard floors were being prepped for harvest and sprayed for husk fly as well as navel orange worm. Walnut harvest began in some areas, though. Growth regulator sprays were applied to some walnut groves to promote development, and the pistachio harvest is ongoing. In San Joaquin County, the harvest continues with processing tomatoes, honeydew melons, watermelons, cantaloupe, pumpkins, peppers, and sweet corn. Farmer market vegetables continue to be harvested and offered for sale. In Monterey County, the end of the harvest season approached with shorter days and warm and windy weather. The produce quality was decreasing with increased pest and less-than-ideal production pressures. Head lettuce showed seed stem, wind damage, and tip burn due to weather. Harvesting and shipping remained active throughout the week. In Fresno County, tomato harvest is almost done, but low yields are reported. Lettuce seed harvest is finished. Carrots are being planted. Soil was prepped for planting organic garlic. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers are being picked by certified producers and sold at local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers are being harvested and shipped domestically. Fall vegetables were planted. They're developing well. The pumpkins were prepared for harvest. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland was reported to be in poor to very poor condition, as is normal for the end of summer. Rain in the northern parts of the state will help range and dry pasture begin to recover. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Some bees were moved out of state as pollination needs were wrapping up for the year. Spring rains and summer heat have combined to reduce the California tomato harvest. Farmers say the wet spring delayed planting and hot summer temperatures brought stress to the tomato plants. As a result, a growers group expects the harvest of processing tomatoes here in the Sacramento Valley will be about 1 million tons smaller than estimated by a government survey. California farms grow most of the nation's processing tomatoes, which are used for sauces, ketchup, and other products. AFBF used comments from Farm Bureau members to submit suggestions for regulatory reform to USDA as part of the agency's efforts to implement the president's regulatory reform agenda. Paul Schlegel, AFBF's Director of Environment and Energy Policy, says overregulation by federal agencies is burdensome to all of agriculture. It's hard to look at it nationally and say there's X amount of dollars, but it's significant. It runs from environment to natural resources to labor to endangered species. There's a whole range of things. It is widespread and it takes place everywhere. For example, he says regulatory creep has chipped away at the exemptions for normal farming practices under the clean water rule. How an agency would determine what is normal 
can affect whether you're exempt or not. So if you're changing from one crop to another, an agency might say they don't consider that normal. Those things have the effect of making farmers subject to regulation, whereas Congress has said they shouldn't be. USDA will continue to accept comments over the next year. Schlegel says this is a good opportunity to ease the overregulation burden on farmers and ranchers. Unfortunately, it's a long list of challenges, but we're grateful for the opportunity we have. On Capitol Hill, there's legislation we're pushing, and in the arena downtown at EPA, at USDA, at Department of Interior, we're trying to get them to focus on things and make some changes. Michael Clements, Washington. In California, prune orchards, farmers report a much improved crop. The California Dried Plum Board says the harvest is winding down with volumes recovering from weather-related challenges that cut production in recent years. The 2017 prune crop at 105,000 tons would be roughly twice what farmers harvested last year. California farms produce virtually all U.S.-grown prunes and about 40% of the world's supply. If you do the food shopping, you no doubt have noticed the explosion... Uh, Yes, in food package labels, making claims about what that food has or doesn't have, how it was produced or how it wasn't produced. Things like... um, No trans fat, no GMO, no free, no no Oh, yeah. And it goes on and on and on. The numbers of the claims and the foods that are making them are indeed exploding. Yes, all right. One researcher says that there are three words to categorize the label of situation. The good, the bad, the ugly. University of Delaware economist Kent Messer. First, a review of our last story with him where we covered the good and the bad. Two different approaches there. One is to say, hey, here's something that we're doing good. You'll really like it. Come buy our, our product. And that's good information, right? That's that's helpful information. Information based on good, solid science, such as zero trans fats or contains or doesn't contain peanuts to which some people are allergic. However, there's a Perhaps a more negative side to this is when you start emphasizing what you aren't doing and in in the process really cast in a negative light what others are doing. Even if there's nothing wrong with what others are doing, you're kind of implicitly saying, I'm free of hormones, right? Well, hormones must be a bad thing. And therefore, being free of these is a, you know, is a positive and you're at the same time casting the broader market in a, in a negative way. And what's a particularly concerning is when that's not supported by science. For example, he says researchers have repeatedly proven foods and products produced with genetically modified ingredients no different from other foods, just as safe. So putting on the label no GMOs plays on and increases consumers' unfounded fears of GMO products. So my cereal for my kid says it's GMO-free. Well, that must mean GMOs are are dangerous to my family, so I'm going to have to respond and move away from that product. And so we have the good and the bad. And then what we call the ugly is when we think about where where could this go? Are we starting to stigmatize safe food and, and casting it in a negative light by those sort of free of labels? Are we going to be seeing that food producers are going to be shying away from science and technology and things that you know might have a scary name, not because they're bad for consumers, but because they're worried about what labels might be put on them or how they might be cast negative. He says food companies and universities might decide out of caution or fear to curtail agricultural research and put resources into other things. Now, the United Nations says the world will have to double its food production over the next 33 years to feed our growing population. Mester says it's going to take a lot more science and technology, not less, to do that. So that's the concern, that if we find that labeling anything scientific draws consumers away, then it will hurt the poor the most. Or if we're afraid of, of using safe technology, that, that doesn't help people. At least that's the opinion of Messer and his two co-researchers in their new study. It's called again. The good, the bad, the ugly. 
This is bad and ugly, but gluten-free. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Wild bees can help manage honeybees to be more efficient at crop pollination. That's according to a University of California researcher, a UC Davis professor, and a team compared orchards that had wild bees with orchards that didn't. They found the presence of wild bees helped honeybees to pollinate more flowers, leading to an improved crop set. They say that's because native bees encourage honeybees to move more among rows of trees. We'll have more on this later on the KSTE Farm Hour. Farmers, if you use cover crops as part of your rotation, have you noticed improvements in both your yields and your weed control? Those are among the trends revealed in the latest edition of an annual survey conducted by a consortium of interest headed by the Conservation Technology Information Center. Always has been supported by the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program within USDA, but also in the last three or four years has been supported by the American Seed Trade Association. With Chad Watts of the center adding that Purdue University is involved in producing the survey. Among the results for the 2017 cover crop survey, of those farmers questioned, 88% say they use cover crops. It's not just any more small farmers who do vegetable and horticultural crops. It's not just conservation zealots who only do no-till. It's a wide variety of farmers who are using cover crops. Illustrated by where responses came from, farmers from all but three states responding to the survey. Every year, the survey asks if those crops planted following a cover crop in a rotation are experiencing better yields. Watt says the trend in increased yields is reported for the fifth consecutive year for corn and soybeans. We saw about a two-bushel increase in the corn yields, a two-bushel increase in the soybean crop. We saw about a two-bushel increase in the wheat yields on farms that had cover crops on them. 85% of those farmers surveyed note soil health improvement as a result of cover crop use. Watts adds that cover crops appear to offer the benefit of weed control, especially in the growing problem of herbicide-resistant weeds, which 59% of survey respondents say are an issue in their fields. We're seeing more and more people that are using cereal rye in particular for that option. When using cereal rye as a cover crop, 25% of the farmers always saw better weed control and 44% sometimes saw better weed control. So in essence, about 70% of the farmers across the U.S. are seeing, at least occasionally, seeing better weed control when they're using cereal rye in particular as a cover crop. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Agricultural producers understand that both the damage assessment and recovery processes from Hurricanes Harvey and Irma will be ongoing for several months, in some instances, several years. Both processes, though, are underway in the impacted areas of the western Gulf Coast and southeast. We're going to do everything the law allows to be as generous, as compassionate, as quick as we possibly can to help you all restore as much as you can. Secretary Sonny Perdue is among those in the Agriculture Department assessing damages to crops and livestock, listening to affected producers, and finding ways to assist in the recovery. I'm Rod Bain, and Gary Crawford and Stephanie Ho join us in a look at what's ahead in the aftermath of two major hurricanes in this edition of Agriculture USA. What have two hurricanes in a one-month period done in the way of damages to crops and livestock? Answers are starting to come forward, if yet slowly. Gary Crawford has more. 
Thanks, Rod. And yes, we are starting to learn more about the effects of hurricanes Harvey and Irma. But USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says it took a while to even start looking. It's just been tough to get out there, whether it's gas shortages, power outages, or trees across farm roads. It's going to take a while. And even now, the estimates of crop losses are changing all the time. For example, Georgia's Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black originally said that cotton losses in his state would be 20 percent. But after touring cotton fields, losses could be bigger. Now we're seeing quite a bit of wind damage, and I'm afraid that's what we're going to see more and more of develop over the coming weeks with this cotton crop. And now Stephanie Ho reports on hurricane impacts on some other crops. Gary, Florida's citrus industry is also facing the potential of huge losses from Hurricane Irma. The state's Agriculture Commissioner, Adam Putnam, says the storm devastated crops that were maturing and ready for harvest, as well as other ag products. Citrus, sugar, vegetables, landscaping, Gary, were most hard hit. At the same time, there were some areas of good news in Texas in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. We have had a report from our industry members. They've shared that it was a lower than expected life loss in our livestock industry. That was Andy Vestal, Texas State Coordinator for the Extension Disaster Education Network, or EDEN. Meanwhile, as Rod Bain reports, more detailed numbers on the extent of the damage will be available soon. Stephanie, those USDA field staff and hurricane-impacted states, those that conduct monthly surveys for upcoming crop production estimates, will have extra work gathering data the next two weeks. In addition to asking producers to tell us what they expect their yields to be, we're going to re-ask them how many acres they now expect to harvest. Lance Honig of the National Agricultural Statistics Service says the focus in four southeast states will be cotton, peanuts, and soybeans, while Texas and Louisiana will have a wider range of crops covered in the harvested acreage update. Those numbers will appear in USDA's October crop production reports, along with the first estimates for Florida's citrus crop. Meanwhile, recovery efforts and assistance continue to grow in a variety of ways. Stephanie Ho talks about one such resource. Rod, USDA has a joint online effort called EDEN, the Extension Disaster Education Network. It provides important information to help the public prepare for or deal with the effects of unexpected events like a natural disaster. Texas EDEN coordinator Andy Vestal says one useful hint is a simple way to deal with imported fire ants, which people are likely to find as they're clearing debris. Needless to say, the ants have painful bites. What we've shared with people with just common dishwashing soap mixed with water in a sprayer, you can wipe them out. Meanwhile, Gary Crawford says the recovery from Hurricanes Harvey and Irma will be long term. Yes, for some very long-term, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue was out touring the devastated Mason family pecan farm in Georgia, which had 4,000 trees destroyed, and he told reporters, What the Masons will have to do is order trees. Nurseries are backed up. It'll be 2019 before they can even get trees placed back here where these trees are down. And then you're going to be probably seven to ten years before you get a crop from that. Incredible. Now back to you, Rod Bain. Gary will take a wide range of support to help producers recover from the hurricanes over time. And across the nation and the world, there is outpouring of support for disaster victims. In Texas, rancher Amber Tortoris and Texas AgriLife Extension's Andy Vessel are grateful for such aid. We've had truck drivers donate their time to bring supplies from El Campo, Texas, from New Jersey to bring donations. We were unloading hay over a two-hour period from 10 different states. That was pretty awesome. Among the many stories of what recovery from Harvey and Irma might look like for affected farmers and ranchers in the coming months and years. This has been Agriculture USA. 
For Gary Crawford and Stephanie Ho, I'm Rod Bade reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There's a new report out in California Agriculture Magazine, the summer 2017 edition, called Hedgerow Benefits Aligned with Food Production and Sustainability Goals. Now, we've talked about the benefits of hedgerows in the past on this program with Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. But one of the things we did not talk about is the fact that even though it has been proven to provide habitat for bees and other beneficials on farms, and it is a big benefit, there is not much participation by California farmers in restoring habitat area. Why is that participation so low? So we're talking with Rachel again, Rachel Long, farm advisor, based in Woodland. And uh, first of all, for people who don't know, let's define what a hedgerow is. Well, uh, uh, thank you for having me. And uh, so a hedgerow is uh, a row of trees or shrubs or um, uh, wildflowers that uh, that border field crop edges. And so they're uh, they're generally about maybe 15 feet wide and and however long the uh, the field length is. So it's oftentimes maybe uh, 1,200 feet. And so it's just a border of plantings that uh, that are adjacent to a crop field. These are basically California native plants, I guess. Yeah, we like to recommend the California native flowering plants uh, because these are drought tolerant and uh, they don't uh, require uh, summer watering uh, once they are established. What would be in a basic hedgerow plant list? So for the uh, for the shrubs, what, what we like to uh, recommend would be like manzanita, uh, toyon, which is also called uh, Christmas berry. There's California buckwheat that has some wonderful, wonderful white uh, flowers, and then uh, coffee berry is is another one that's a shrub, and then also uh, redbud, which has these wonderful uh, purple flowers early in the springtime, and then another one would be a uh, ceanothus or California lilac that has really beautiful. Uh, blue flowers early in the season. And then a mix of wildflowers is also good too. So you might have like poppies and uh, and, and lupin and uh, maybe some gum plant, which is actually really good in the summertime for bees and in some cases some sunflower. Now, as we have talked about in the past about how hedgerows can enhance pest control and pollination in crops, one of the problems farmers were cited was the return on investment that it takes a few years for this whole project to break even, doesn't it? It certainly does. And uh, and so if you put in a hedgerow that's, say, about uh, maybe 1,200 feet long by uh, uh, maybe 15 feet wide, uh, just to establish that hedgerow for the first uh, couple of years is going to take somewhere around $4,000. So so it does take an investment of both uh, time and money to uh, to get these hedgerows in. Um, but uh, but the uh, really exciting part of it is that we've documented that you do you can get a return on that investment, and for uh, for pest control alone, in terms of attracting in beneficial insects and exporting them to adjacent crops for pest control, that takes going to take somewhere around 15 years, and in, in terms of like you know fewer insecticides used, so that is a long time. Um, but but if you add in pollination. In terms of the services that the uh, native bees and the honeybees uh, provide for for pollination from that are exported from the hedgerows, and that changes to about seven years. 
That was one of the uh, surprising things I learned from you the last time we talked about hedgerows was the interaction of the native bees and the honey bees and the way that they can pollinate, especially in orchard, where there may be a few varieties of pollinating plants for the others, such as perhaps in an almond orchard. And it's the mm -hmm. flight, the flight pattern of the native bee that inspires the honey bee to uh, sort of break out of its uh, regimen. Right. I think that's what's so exciting about some of the research that's coming out in this area is that the uh, the native bees are often like pollen collectors. So your bumblebees are out there collecting a lot of pollen. And uh, um, but it's the uh, it's actually the interaction that they have with the honeybees in fields that actually uh, causes the honeybees to disperse more and uh, be better pollinators. So, for example, like sunflowers, we grow a lot of uh sunflowers in our area for seed production. So about 40% of the world's sunflower seeds for planting come from, from our area of the Sacramento Valley. And you need to plant male and female rows. Well, you need a honeybee to, to move pollen between male and female rows. But honeybees have a specific task. They're either collecting pollen or they're collecting nectar. And, and it's oftentimes when the honeybee interacts with a native bee out there, like a bumblebee, that, uh, that, that interaction is like a, um, it's, it's just, it causes them to disperse more. It's like a territorial display where they disperse much more. Um, when they interact with the uh, with the honeybees. What was interesting to learn was how the native bees sort of uh, pollinate in a crisscross fashion, and honeybees, mm -hmm. when they move through an orchard or a field, they work in straight lines, and you want yes. to kind of change that straight line habit into a crisscross fashion. Yeah, and that's the that's the interaction with the with the native bees that you do have this sort of a territorial interaction with the native bee saying, "Hey, this is where I am." collecting my food and uh, and I don't want you around here and so they kind of they can oftentimes sort of push a honeybee out and it causes them like you say to crisscross and move into the adjacent rows. We're talking with University of California Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor Rachel Long based in Woodland about the benefits of hedgerows on the farm, how they can decrease pesticide costs while increase the number of beneficial insects such as native bees to help pollinate crops. But what are the drawbacks to installing a hedgerow? <laughs> Okay, let's talk about some of the problems that or excuses that farmers may give you for not establishing a hedgerow. One of the more uh, common farmer, I won't say complaints, but uh, concerns would be the possibility of attracting pest insects or diseases. Right. Well, so so you know they, uh, that that always is a concern that if you put a hedgerow in that you're going to get some more pests or diseases. But actually, all of the California native plants that we recommend um, really don't have any pests, and the pests are attracted more to weeds. So you'll have mustard, you'll have uh, cheese weed, you'll have radish, and uh, and other types of weeds. And the weeds are really where you have a lot of issues with both pests and uh, and diseases. So as long as you're keeping your hedgerow clean and you don't have weeds in there, that you're really not going to have trouble with any any pests attracted to the farm and the hedgerow. And that is an other big concern by farmers is the time involved with management of weeds. And uh, mm -hmm. I the, the strategy I've always heard in regards to this is you got to get the weeds early. 
Right, you definitely do because uh, because if you once the weeds are setting seed, well, that doesn't do any good because then you're just going to have more weeds. But you really you have to manage weeds on your farm regardless if you have a hedgerow or not. And so it really having a hedgerow isn't going to be any more time for managing weeds because you have to manage weeds anyways in terms of other uh, uh, field crop edges that don't have a hedgerow. And uh, but then once the hedgerows do get established, then they actually work pretty well for outcompeting weeds. One of the plants you mentioned as part of a hedgerow staple is the toyon, also known as the Christmas berry. Mm-hmm. That produces berries in the wintertime. And a farmer, right. a farmer may say, why do I want to attract birds or other vertebrates to those berries that could move on and damage my crops? Well, that's a good question, too. But, uh, but actually what we're finding is that the birds that are attracted to the hedgerows are, are oftentimes uh, beneficial birds in that they feed also on crop pests. And so the hedgerows actually serve as a really important site for a lot of our migratory songbirds that come through this area in both the springtime and the wintertime. So when you talk about bird pests, like your starlings and blackbirds and such, those birds are there regardless of field edge habitat. So you could have a hedgerow or you could not have a hedgerow and you're still going to have those pest birds. But what we find is that the hedgerows actually do bring in a lot of really good birds. There are songbirds uh, that, uh, that, that are really important for helping with, uh, with pest control in, in adjacent crops. Now, that said, sometimes if you plant the hedgerow right next to, like within, inch, within inches of a new uh, seedling crop field, like, you know, of, uh, say, of vegetables, that you can have some white crowned sparrows that will feed on those seedlings. So it's just really important to try to have a little bit of a barrier between the crop and the hedgerow, such as like a dirt road, and that would really cut down on on the bird uh, predation of new seedlings, like vegetable seedlings. So your recommendation for that would be a 15-foot space? Like a road or dirt road or something in between the crop and the hedgerow, or or just transplant. So if you're you're, uh, in a completely transplant industry, then then it doesn't really matter because it's just the, the small seedlings that the white crown sparrows would be after. And I am sure you've heard from the farmers who have said, why would I want to put in a hedgerow? Why do I want to increase the rodent population on my farm? <laughs> right, that's another good question. And uh, and so this is something that we uh, studied actually uh, for for a couple of years. And, and we're just about to uh, come out with a, uh, with a paper that, that focuses in on rodents associated with hedgerows. But what we really found is that uh, is that you have rodents on your farm regardless of your field edge habitat. So remember when we talk about a hedgerow, we're just talking about vegetation on the field edge. And so it's only like 15 feet wide. It is long, but just very, very narrow. And because it's so narrow, it just doesn't support large numbers of, of rodents any more so than a, 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 a say a, a field edge that did not have any hedgerows that just was sort of semi-weedy. And uh, really, it seems like rodents are more driven by uh, what's happening in neighbors' fields. So, for example, if you had, say, an 80-acre alfalfa field that you, that somebody disked up, or if you harvested a tomato crop, then the rodents really move, and they'll move from that field into the adjacent field. But as far as the uh, the small 
narrow hedgerow is just not big enough to support uh, rodent populations uh, uh, relative to, say, a field edge that didn't have a hedgerow. And I am sure there are those farmers who may be thinking, well, wait a minute, if I install a hedgerow, that means I have to buy plants. And if I'm buying plants, I'm bringing in soil. And what is the risk Mm -hmm. of me bringing in soil that might spread pathogens or diseases? Yeah, that's another good question. I like all your questions, and and uh, so there are uh, there are diseases that uh, that you know certainly are, are are in that soil, and especially like Phytophthora. But those tend to be very host specific on that particular plant. So, for example, I uh, like Toyon or Christmas berry that has those wonderful berries in the fall, the red berries. So um, there could be like you know a disease in there, but it's just not going to move to your to your crop because it tends to be fairly host specific. And, and that said, though, a lot of the uh, there's a lot of work being done to make sure that the plants that are brought out are healthy. And uh, so oftentimes people will just hold the plants, you know, for a good month or so and just make sure that uh, that they're not they don't lose any due to uh, due to disease pressure before they plant them. And I'm sure you've talked to those farmers, too, are trying to save a little money uh, thinking about establishing a hedgerow. And maybe mm-hmm. instead of uh, buying things in a one gallon container, they might go to something in a six pack or mm-hmm. uh, or not buying as many as recommended. Right. And uh, and so you can certainly do that. The, the idea of a hedgerow is that you do want it to have, you know, fairly solid um, mix of plants that uh, that especially flowering shrubs that bloom at different times so that there's always pollen and nectar available for our beneficial insects, the bees and the natural enemies like ladybugs and such. And uh, and so you can buy smaller plants. Uh, the issue with that is oftentimes that it's hard to uh, to make sure that uh, that they get the right amount of water because for the first uh, three years, you really do need to irrigate these hedgerows because they have to get established. They have to get that deep taproot down uh, in order to survive the long, or long uh, hot, dry summers. And so it is important to irrigate for the first three years. And what happens is if you have a little tiny plug, it just becomes more difficult to uh, to ensure that you have the uh, the right amount of water. So we do recommend that people plant in the fall and then set up an irrigation system. And I find if you just have the gallon pots, boy, it's so much easier to keep those uh, moist as opposed to the real small ones. I would think two farmers might be concerned about uh, the spread of some seeds from the hedgerow into adjacent mm-hmm. fields and, and becoming weedy. Right. That uh, that always is a, is another question. But uh, but what we're recommending are these uh, drought tolerant uh, perennial plants, and uh, and it just you know perennials take a long time to get established, and uh, and so we just don't see the uh, the intrusion into into the adjacent crops and so um, because you know you have a lot of disking and cultivation and spraying in the crops you just you just don't get the movement of the uh, of uh, of these hedgerow plants into the into the adjacent crops so what was the final takeaway from all these years of study of hedgerows of, that you've done here in the Sacramento Valley that, uh, that that having studied hedgerows for for most of my career for about 25 years, I I what I see is that they just really add some resilience into our farming system. So, for example, the is the honeybees are still working well for for getting good pollination of our crops, um, but but maybe there might be a one year where the honeybees just aren't as strong, like the hives just aren't as strong, and uh, if you have a hedgerow there then there's native bees that are in there that are moving into the adjacent crop. They're being exported into the adjacent crop to help out with pollination. And so maybe in an off year where the bees aren't working as well or maybe it's really cold, 
and those native bees are actually out there working for us and helping to uh, to provide uh, some pollination so that we're not entirely dependent on on one uh, pollinator for for crop production. I would think in, in your line of work, getting the word out about the benefits of hedgerows, uh, you, you can be hamstrung sometimes by who's in power if there are cuts to USDA funding or, or other sources of funding that continued policy support for conservation mm-hmm. programs is something that you mm-hmm. always have to stress. Yeah, I think that it it, uh, it really what's very very important is certainly to have the uh, some technical expertise out there to provide information on how to put these hedgerows in and and the types of plants to select that are gonna that are gonna do the best and so um, certainly there's money that is involved in uh, in buying the plants and it's always uh, a benefit to have some cautious funding to help pay for those plants but. Uh, but more than that, I think that there really uh, needs to be uh, some um, just a help out there, technical expertise that is available for, for people to, uh, to get the information that they need for, for putting in these hedgerows. And that's why I think that it's, there's a need to stress the, uh, the policy port support for conservation programs to ensure that, uh, that we have, uh, have the expertise out there to support uh, conservation uh, issues like like putting in these uh, these hedgerows that that we know are beneficial and that they really do provide a stability. And who knows, maybe someday there will be uh, tax breaks for uh, greater sustainability mm-hmm. on a farm. Oh, I, I would I would hope so because it it really does benefit all of us for for these hedgerows. The additional benefits um, in terms of uh, uh, just uh, conservation is they can they can help out certainly with. Um, with soil uh, um, soil loss, uh, stabilizing the soil, and and also water quality protection because we know these hedgerows can also help to uh, filter uh, filter water, and uh, certainly uh, help with air quality and uh, and so the benefits uh, the benefits really do go beyond uh, just for the uh, just for the farmer. So I would hope that this would be a uh, something that uh, that would be supported by the uh, by the general public because everyone benefits. You can read about it in the summer 2017 edition of California Agriculture Magazine. Hedgerow benefits align with food production and sustainability goals. The main author, Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. Rachel, as always, we learned a lot. Thanks for your time. Oh, you're most welcome. It's good talking with you. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.